my friends, today I tell you a great story out of the UK. Oh, what a wonderful story. A bunch of pubs have got together and banned their local member of parliament from ever drinking there again for the rest of his life from any pubs in his hometown because he was for a lockdown. What a great story. I will tell you the details in a moment, but first let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. Just go to rebelnews.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. That's nothing compared to Netflix. And you get my show, the video version of this podcast, as well as shows from Sheila Gunn Reed and David Menzies. I think it's a bargain, and it helps us stay strong and independent. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, finally some good news, a member of the lockdown class gets locked out by restaurant owners he's attacked. It's November 12th and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government is because it's my bloody right to do so. Look at this surprising story from a surprising place reported in a surprising forum. Lifetime pub ban for Warrington MP who backed 10 p.m. curfew. So this is from the BBC, the United Kingdom state broadcaster. It's like Canada's CBC, but even worse, if you can imagine it, much bigger. They literally extract 3.5 billion pounds a year through a BBC tax. That's 6 billion Canadian dollars each year. They're the worst, trust me. The reporters once tried to have me arrested when I was in the UK because they didn't like what I was tweeting at a Tommy Robinson trial. I'll tell you that story another day, just so you know how awful the BBC is. But look at this. An MP has received a lifetime ban from the pubs, bars, and clubs in his own town following his support for the recent 10 p.m. coronavirus curfew. Warrington South MP Andy Carter will be barred from some 30 venues in the Cheshire town after the local pub watch group voted unanimously to ban him. Members said Mr. Carter had shown the industry no support. First of all, that's amazing. Second of all, we've got to start doing that here in Canada. And everywhere these lockdowns are happening, like Australia for sure. Third of all, if you've never been to the UK, you might not understand the pub culture. It's not just a bar where people go to drink. Pubs, and I know this sounds surprising to Canadians and Americans, they're family places. Sure, they serve beer, and the bar is the center of the place often. But it's, it's a restaurant, it's a town square, it's a hangout. Sometimes there's music. There's often a little park outside where the kids play. You see the whole family going there for an outing. <clears throat> the men wind up talking to the other men. The women catch up with each other. The kids play together either in the pub or outside. It's so fun and so central to the community feeling in these towns. It's not like our bars here in Canada. Last point before I read some more. Pub Watch is like a neighborhood watch, but for, for pubs. Here's their website. I'll read a little bit from it. National Pub Watch is a voluntary organization set up to promote best practice through supporting the work of local pub watch schemes. Its aim is to achieve a safer drinking environment in all licensed premises throughout the UK. So these are the most community-minded, safety-minded people. I'd almost use, use the word do-gooders. So they crack down on people who are rowdy or whatever. They 
try and keep it family friendly. And they decided that the threat to their community wasn't some rowdy drunk this time. It was a local MP. Anyways, let me keep going. The conservatives said, using the pub safety scheme for political aims, brought it into disrepute. Oh, got it. So the pubs are the disreputable ones, eh? Says a politician, the irony, it's too thick. Let me read more. The 10 p.m. curfew was introduced by the government to curb gatherings, but was criticized by the hospitality industry, which maintained venues were safe, and the early closing time only encouraged more household mixing. One pub watch member said the curfew had absolutely killed us. Of course it did, but get back to the science. Can you please tell me why a virus is not dangerous at 9.59 p.m., but becomes dangerous at 10 p.m.? It reminds me of when they reduced the number of subway trains in London, the tube they call it. There were fewer people traveling, so they uh, reduced the number of trains, so they jammed people just as tightly together nonetheless. How did that make sense? If you're trying to separate people because of the virus, Why have fewer trains? Same thing with a pub. If you're just jamming a lot more people into fewer hours in the pub, I don't know, let's say four hours instead of six hours, aren't you just really making them more busy, more crowded for the smaller time? Everyone has to shuffle in. But but this whole debate's ridiculous, as if any of this is based on science or or a medical basis. I'm just showing you that even in their own terms, it's bollocks, as the Brits would say, as if there's science here. But did you see this a month ago? when the pub curfews were brought in, as if 65 million Brits had to be treated like children. Parliament's bars are not subject to 10 p.m. curfew, and MPs don't have to give their contact details to get a drink. Bars inside Parliament are exempt from the government's new 10 p.m. curfew. Facilities serving inside Palace of Westminster are as a workplace canteen. Yeah, that's a good one. Comes after a curfew was imposed on pubs, bars, and restaurants in in England. Yeah, so you see, this virus is so clever. It only attacks regular people, but only after 10 p.m. But MPs and lords have special immunity, didn't you know? Or at least in their parliamentary pubs after 10 p.m. Don't you know this is science, people? I should know that this rule was reportedly changed after massive public outcry, but I'm not sure if I even trust that, do you? So congrats to Pubwatch. Let Andy Carter get a drink in Parliament instead of his own hometown. Look at this story here. I thought this was interesting. The number one reason people break COVID rules is those who run the country don't stick to them. Let me read a little bit. The main reason people do not follow coronavirus restrictions is those who run the country don't stick to them, according to a new poll. This was a few months ago. And Ipsos Mori, a study asked 1,067 adults aged 18 to 75 how convincing several arguments were against following restrictions. In total, 47% of people said they felt the lack of adherence to rules from authority figures contributed to people breaking them. That's a good reason. Another good reason is that the rules make no sense. Another good reason is that people can govern themselves. If you're afraid of the cough, you can stay home. If you want to wear a mask and think it'll stop the virus, help yourself. If you want to go home at 10 p.m. like a good little boy, Feel free. How about we each choose our own level of panic and paranoia? Let me read some more from the BBC story. This this is quoting the Pub Watch folks again. He said people were angry and Mr. Carter had shown, quote, no support for the hospitality industry at a time when we need as much as we can get. Mr. Carter, who has been an MP in the town since December 2019, said it was 
Simply not true to say the government had not supported hospitality. Sure, hey guys, um, we're showing you tremendous support by telling you what to do, telling your customers what to do, and fining both of you with outrageous fines if you don't do it. Carter says it's actually been wonderful. Uh, I mean, he put pubs on a sort of welfare, so they should be grateful. Pubs have received grants, access to loans, and government schemes, including Eat Out to Help Out, and most recently, backdated support. I'm disappointed to see licensees using an important scheme like PubWatch for political aims. It's totally against what it was set up for. Yeah, guys, come on. The ruling class is so disappointed with you. You should be cheerful about being locked down, shut down, torn down, your life's savings, your life's work. Come on, guys, chin up. Keep calm and carry on. Yeah, no thanks, mate. The fact that this is a conservative MP makes it even more gross. Not that labor would be any better. I see that Nigel Farage, a stellar pub goer, if ever there was one, is looking to start an anti-lockdown party called Reform UK, which support other things too, like closing the doors to illegal migrants coming across the English Channel in little dinghies. Hopefully, Nigel Farage's new party will scare some sense into people like Andy Carter and Boris Johnson. They obviously are immune to criticism from their own voters. They don't care. I mean, it makes sense. Where are those voters going to go? The Labour Party? <laughs> well, to Nigel is the answer. And in the meantime, good on you, pub watchers of Warrington. This politician is actually a greater threat to you than any drunk hooligan. Let him drink alone. Stay with us for more. Think about that, the pubs of Warrington banning their local MP for life from ever setting foot in a club, restaurant, or pub again because he voted to shut them down, to lock them down. I think that is wonderful. I'm generally very much against deplatforming, and I wouldn't want them to do that to a private citizen for, you know, illegitimate reasons. But when an officer of the state, when a member of parliament positively says you must shut down, I think it's absolutely fair play to say you are never to set foot in our pubs again. And it reminds me of the difference between the ruling class and the working class and other severely normal people during this lockdown. For some in the ruling class, it has been a delight. For teachers unions who have never lost a minute's pay but didn't have to go to work in the spring. I mean, how great is that? Um, I haven't seen a politician or a journalist lose their jobs. In fact, um, all the MPs and senators gave themselves a pay raise on April Fool's Day, if you recall. And so it is that I see that a group of 70 doctors have written to the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, demanding that he go against the advice of the chief medical officer and lock down the province. Obviously, Rachel Notley, the socialist uh, NDP leader who was ousted as premier, she loves the idea too, but someone who's a little more skeptical is our friend John Carpe, the boss of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and he joins us via Skype from Calgary. Now, John, great to see you again. Good to see you, Ezra. John, I did read that 70 letter, a uh, 70 signatory letter calling on the, the premier to lock things down. Uh, what's your response to the letter? This is blatant fear-mongering by Alberta doctors who are ignoring the very clear, readily available data 
that's provided by Alberta Health Services about cases and hospitalizations and ICU uh, admissions and COVID deaths and everything else. They're ignoring the data. And if you like, I can give you three or four specific examples. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, first of all, they are hyping up the number of cases. Uh, but the fact is the Alberta health data shows that less than 3% of these cases are people who are sick enough to require hospitalization. So when the media is screaming that there are, uh, you know, 1,000 new cases, well, then you've got, uh, you know, 900 and something are perfectly healthy people that don't need to be in hospital. So the cases, the number of cases uh, includes anybody that's got any trace virus of anything and uh, false positive rates are as high as 90%. And the media continue to mislead the public by not providing that context because the hospitalizations are about 3% of the cases. So cases are just, uh, it's just fear mongering. Uh, give me another example. I'm familiar with false positives here in Ontario. Uh, the deputy public health officer says it's half. Half the cases are false. I hadn't heard 90%, but it doesn't shock me. When you test people who are healthy, which is a strange thing to do, I think, um, you're going to get false positives, uh, especially depending on how sensitive to, to the virus you make the test. Uh, give me some more stats. Okay, the doctors, the 70 doctors that signed the letter to Jason Kenney urging lockdowns, they say that we are in a crisis uh, in terms of hospital beds and ICU capacities. The system is at risk of being overrun. Have you heard that one before? Yeah. <laughs> the system's going to be overrun. And then, you know, in, in uh, late March, all of April, early May, uh, the hospitals in Alberta, and I'm also told in Ontario and elsewhere, were largely empty because the patients were terrified of going into the hospital. So in Alberta, we've got just shy of 8,500 hospital beds. Currently, 200 out of 8,500 are being used by COVID patients. So COVID patients are using 3% of the hospital beds in Alberta. And here these doctors are saying that, you know, we're on the brink of being overrun. Um, the other big one is that they are not making any reference to the COVID death stats, and these are down from the peak in April, May. And COVID was like a wave. You can look at the Italian, American, British, uh, Alberta, Ontario, every jurisdiction. There was a wave of deaths when the virus kind of spiked, and uh, that was in April, May. Deaths dropped off sharply in June, and they stayed low in July, August, September, October, into November. The deaths are not, there is no second wave of COVID deaths. That is not my opinion. That is what the government data says. And yet these doctors are uh, pandering in panic to make everybody afraid of, of, of dying of COVID uh, when there is no second wave of COVID deaths. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I look at the stats every day, and... Uh, you have to clear through the cases. Everyone wants to talk about cases because they don't want to talk about the hospitalization rate or the death rate. Um, but even still, 92% of the cases are in Quebec and Ontario, which is much more than those provinces share of the population. By the way, Quebec is out of control for whatever reason. It's got 61% of all the, the deaths in this country. My theory is it has to do with their euthanasia laws, their assisted suicide laws, and their do not revive policies in seniors' homes. I mean, my view is that this isn't so much a disease of 
the population or even the disease of seniors, it's a disease of seniors' homes with do not revive instructions. But literally only nine, eight or nine percent of the deaths and the hospitalizations, it's, it's roughly the same, uh, are outside Ontario and Quebec. I think these 70 doctors want to be with the cool kids, the fashionable worry warts in Toronto and Montreal. Uh, if it weren't for Quebec and Ontario, this would be, this would be just another flu season. In fact, nationally, there's about 10,500 deaths. On any given year, the flu takes between 6,500 and 8,500 souls. So this is re really within the norms of a flu outbreak. You take out Ontario, Quebec, it's, it's negligible. I don't think we would even know there was a pandemic if people weren't talking about it. That absolutely, you hit the nail right on the head. This is the biggest problem is that we had real pandemics, the Spanish flu 1918 to 1920, when 20 million people, some historians say 50 million, some historians say 100 million, but we had at least 20 million people die in 1918 to 1920. And this is at a time when the world's population is less than 2 billion. So it's, it's barely a quarter, a little bit more than a quarter of the world's population today. So this, the Spanish flu today, if we had the equivalent, we would be seeing 80 million people die across the world. That's a real pandemic. We had other pandemics, 1957, we had the Asian flu that went all around the world. It killed over 2 million people. 1968, we had the Hong Kong flu that killed over a million people. And this is when the world's population is less than half of what it is today. So now we've got COVID with, uh, I think, a little bit over a million deaths uh, worldwide, which puts it into the same range as the annual flu. And so this is the big lie, is that this is some uh, unusually deadly killer that we should all be very afraid of. That's the big lie that is driving all of this. And I say it's a lie because anybody can go look up the data online and uh, you, can, you can see this is not anywhere near a real pandemic like 1918, 1957, 1968. You know, I, um, I thought that the pandemic panic, it's so partisan in the United States, you can see it so clearly. The Democrats, the blue states, were severe lockdowns, and they made the bizarre decision of sending sick, peop sick people into seniors' homes, like that's what uh, New York's Governor Cuomo did, uh, literally sending people with the virus to the most vulnerable. It was a bizarre decision that I think he'll, uh, he'll never be held to account for. You see the crazy lockdowns even to this day in the blue states, whereas the red states took a hands-off approach. I thought, oh, this is because... Trump's up for re-election, anything to keep a state of panic, state of economic malaise, the Democrats will do anything to dislodge Trump. And I now realize that that wasn't even the center of it. It was to justify mail-in voting. All the, the massive mail-in ballots, the changes to how they conducted votes, including in Pennsylvania, those were not long-standing rules. Those were rules that were changed this year using the pandemic as an excuse to let vote by mail happen. And I truly believe that it was a partisan tool to get rid of Trump. Now, the only question is, if Trump is gone, will they make the rest of us still live in fear and panic? I think it's been too fruitful for the ruling class. They enjoy the power and the attention. And frankly, although I'm always grateful to nurses and doctors, um, you can't escape these TikTok videos of nurses and doctors doing little karaoke dance routines 
in empty hospitals. They're like the teachers unions. They're living it up. I mean, sure, I'm grateful to them for solving this problem that's on par with the annual flu. But I think, I think it was always about an excuse to change society. And I think masks are the same thing. Will you submit? Obedience training, submissive conditioning. I, I know that sounds a little bit wacky, but um, the fear that we all had in March, April, it's gone now other than for its own sake. I think we know enough about the virus to realize it's not the killer like you've described past pandemics. Back to you, John. Well, I, one of the questions I, I've, I've asked in my letter to Jason Kenney is, um, you know, would these doctors be willing to give up their public sector salaries and start living on $2,000 a month in government benefits? And I think the answer is obvious. We're not all in this together uh, for at least two reasons. One is that you know, yes, uh, COVID is a serious threat to roughly 10% of the population. If you're over 70, you have serious pre-existing health conditions, or in some cases, a very small number of, of younger adults who are immunocompromised, in which case they're threatened by all kinds of stuff, not just COVID. But 90% of us, uh, the virus poses no threat to 90% of us, and yet we're still living in this uh fear of March when uh, Neil Ferguson of Imperial College said that millions of people around the world would die and that uh, large numbers of young healthy people would suffer permanent lung damage. And this is blatant fear mongering. And I, you know, when the, when they imposed the lockdown in March uh, and it was going to be just two weeks just to flatten the curve, I, I, you won't find any Justice Center news releases condemning it. I mean, we didn't know at the time and uh, you know, it was fine to take precautions at that time, maybe have a short lockdown for two weeks in March. We're now eight months later, and uh, these measures just perpetuate the fear. We've got Manitoba is under severe lockdown. Churches, uh, synagogues, mosques closed. It's illegal to have uh, friends over for dinner. Toronto is under a new lockdown. Uh, in Quebec, you've got police checks between different sectors of Montreal. I mean, it's like Berlin in 1946. Yeah. You know, you're le leaving the American sector, entering the Soviet sector. Uh, even even in Alberta, uh, there's there's dark clouds of uh, you know making it illegal to have friends over to your house, which I I hate to say it, but that is what uh, living under communism is like when the government tells you that you're not allowed to hang out with your friends. And it, it is so unscientific because the uh, these 70 doctors, they say nothing about the harms of lockdowns, mm -hmm. all the increases in drug overdoses, mm -hmm. uh, family violence, alcoholism, and people driven into unemployment, poverty, despair, suicide, moms. There's no compassion. Yeah. Well, John, we're glad you're fighting on this. Um, I know you've, you've done a lot of work on this, including recently writing to every health ministry in the country asking them if they've even started to count the side effects, how many cancer exams, how many surgeries were all canceled. And I know that so far, all but one of them have refused to answer those questions and it's clear why. Because if anyone is actually paying attention to the side effects here of the lockdown, they realize it's much more deadly than the alleged uh, cause of the lockdown to begin with. I hope you keep fighting this stuff, John. Absolutely. There will be court actions filed in, in the future. It's just a question of getting uh, the right fact scenario and the right claimant and, and so on. But uh, it, it's a matter of when, not if, when we go to court. We'll keep an eye peeled and I'd like to encourage our viewers 
if they haven't already, to go to jccf.ca. That's the website for John and his Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom. In my opinion, the most important civil liberties law firm in the country. Great to see you, John. Good to see you, Ezra. All right. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back on my Remembrance Day show, Truth Rights. Remember all the young men and women who died so we could keep our freedoms only to have these satanic political parasites take it away. Well, satanic is usually too tough a word, but I think there are some anti-human elements in it, that's for sure. And it's so political. I see Dr. Fauci today saying, oh, um, now that the election's over, the pandemic might go away. Oh, is that, is that right? Chuck writes, Amazing that these commies illegitimately label people Nazis, but they have no, disrespect, no respect for those who actually defeated actual Nazis. Isn't that the truth? I don't think, I mean, we, I remember we sent uh, one of our reporters out to do streeters once in downtown Toronto, asking people when was World War II, who were the good guys, who were the bad guys, and, and most people just didn't know. Jerry writes, it is the most disrespectful thing I've ever seen. I will not be supporting any Bezos businesses. I'm happy to use their cancel culture back on them. Giants can fall. Yeah, I mean, whether it's Whole Foods or whether it's that outrageous Extinction Rebellion in London, uh, I think we've forgotten what's important and we've replaced an uh, incredible legacy of history, or a history of freedom and, and the rule of law and national purpose with woke mist that's meaningless and worthless. Well, we'll keep fighting the best we can. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. Keep fighting for freedom.